Well, good morning. I'm Teresa, and I'm grateful to be in Al-Anon. Um, thank you for asking um, me and uh, brought along my husband, Phil, and our good friend, Rusty, to come to Cajun country. Um, we were told we might get some uh, pretty good food to eat, get to hear some interesting dialect, which has been the case, and what a wonderful bunch of people you are. We're having a very good time, and I thank you for the opportunity um, to come and be with you. Um, it's an honor and a privilege to be asked to share my experience, strength, and hope with you. And um, I don't know if it will uh, do anything for you, but it helps me. It helps me remember and it helps me um, get a perspective on my life as it is today compared to what it used to be like. Because now, sometimes when I look back, it really seems surreal because I am not like I used to be. My life is not like it used to be. And sometimes when I look back, I don't recognize, you know, and it seems so strange. And sometimes I just go, oh my God, <laughs> did I really do that? Did I really say that? That's very different from when I got here because then I was saying, did he really do that? <laughs> Did he really say that? Uh, Philip would like for you to know the disclaimer. He's not the one <laughs> that originally qualified me to get here. Um, I was telling a story one time, and he felt the stabs of people's eyes in the back of his head, saying, how dare you do that to that lady? So, there's your disclaimer, honey. Um, when I came to Al-Anon, I didn't want to be there. You know, I was married to um, a chronic, active alcoholic uh, who told me that he was, uh, that he drank enough whiskey for the empty bottles to fill up the mall parking lot, which just went right over my head. I didn't you know, know what that meant, even though my dad was an alcoholic. Uh, my daddy was uh, funny and handsome and wonderful, and he was my hero. Um, and he started drinking when I was about 10 years old or so, and he would drink beer and he'd fall asleep on the couch, and as time went by, you know, he wrecked his car a few times, stuff like that. But he was not um, mean, and he was not violent, and uh, I thought he was fantastic. And my poor mother, I just ignored you know, she met all of my needs. I was just a well-taken-care-of little girl who crawled up in her daddy's lap, and he scratched my back every night of my life, practically, until I was 17 years old and left home to go away with an alcoholic man. <laughs> but I didn't think there was anything wrong with me, you know. Um, I was looking for my own, you know, daddy. My mother married my daddy after she knew him for two weeks. You know, they fell in sick together, whatever it was, and uh, <laughs> he was an orphan, and he had nobody to care for him, and her family was such that her dad, she never heard her daddy laugh out loud. I thought that was the saddest thing I ever heard. And my daddy was funny, and she just fell madly in love with him, and so they ran off and got married, and they were just teenagers. 
And so they had us and when they were just teenagers. And so we had parents to grow up with that were funny and, you know, it was great. And a little brother and a little sister. So we had our nice little uh, central family there. We did not interact a lot with other family members. So it was pretty close. Um, and I was very not exposed to the world. <clears throat> I... Uh, you know, every once in a while we'd visit, go on vacation down to Jackson, Mississippi to see our uncle, who was my dad's half-brother, things like that. But we didn't have a lot of interaction with extended family. I never really had a grandparent. I had a grandmother, um, but I didn't have much contact with her. She never kept us overnight, things like that. And I didn't know until much later, until after I came to Al-Anon, that um, my grandfather had died before I was born, and my grandmother had remarried, and her husband was an alcoholic. And so, there you go. You didn't be keeping the kids overnight and stuff like that. So, um, it's funny the things I learned after I got here that I never, never knew. The patterns that were in my life. You know, my grandmother rescued her family because she was only 12 when her mother ran off. Well, but way back in the day then, you know, women didn't just run off and leave their kids that often, I guess. So, she was uh, the rescue of her family and took care of her several brothers and sisters. And then my mom rescued my daddy because he was an orphan and needed somebody to love him. And then there I was, 17 years old, and I went to my first full-time job after I graduated from high school, and there was this handsome man there. And I took one look at him, and I said, well, I'm going to marry that man. I didn't know anything. And he's the one who took my hand to see if I was wearing a wedding ring. I was just a kid. And, uh, and I knew right then I was going to marry him. Now, never mind, he was already married, had a couple kids. <laughs> So, but he was separated from his wife, and, uh, and she and I got along okay, because I wasn't the one who, who ruined her marriage. They were already separated. It was, it was a bad deal. But, um, so she told me not to marry him. <laughs> My parents told me not to marry him. Um, his own mother told me not to marry him. <laughs> but no, I did it anyway, because I was young and in love, and I had that power of love, and it was going to make everything okay. And I was going to love him so much that he wasn't going to need to drink anymore because he wouldn't be unhappy anymore, he wouldn't be sad. And all the trauma and all his issues and everything would go away because I was going to fix it. And I did not have a clue, you know, what that meant. I didn't know that I didn't have that kind of power, but I tried. And I did that for a long time. Um, our life was pretty insane. And I said my last prayers driving in the car with him many, many times, knowing I was about to die. Um, I, uh, after a period of time, I had considered every possible way out. Um, Murder, suicide, briefly. Uh, I really didn't think about killing myself, but what I thought about was how nice it would be to just be gone. You know, because I, once I got so deeply into the relationship and the marriage and the children and all that, there was no easy way out. And, um, 
I remember watching that movie where uh, Deborah Winger, what was the name of that movie? And the chil- she had the little children and the cheating husband, and then she got cancer and she died. Terms of, and I thought, oh, there you go. I, if I could just get sick and die, you know, <laughs> then you don't have to kill yourself. And, uh, and you're free, and he's left with the snotty-nosed kids, and you're okay. Yeah. Um, that didn't happen. He also threatened to kill himself all the time. My husband was very depressed, you know, and I have learned that al- there's a lot of depression in- that's connected to alcoholism. And he did have some tragedies and things that happened to him in his life. And uh, he was a tormented person, you know, he was tormented. Um, but, you know, then all I could see, I thought he was doing it to me. I just thought he was doing it to me. Um, so anyway, the, um, the craziness that went on in our home, there was a lot of noise, people screaming, I mean, before you leave for work in the morning, the chaos of trying to have a get up, get everybody doing what they're supposed to do, go to work, uh, people screaming, TV's going, radio's going, um, children crying, uh, fighting, just ultimate chaos all the time. We had, uh, I had a lot of uh, animals at one point. Uh, we had um, cats, uh, kitties getting whirled around in the clothes dryer, uh, dog, a three-legged dog because it got run over in the driveway and you couldn't put it down, so it had its leg amputated, so you had the dog hopping around. We had bunny rabbits, we had pet mice, they started, we had them on this condo thing. They said if you built this condo thing for the mice, they wouldn't jump off if it was so many inches off the ground. So you didn't have to have them in a cage, you know. So we had these little mice on this condo. Well, then the field mice started coming in, and they started matching with the pet mice, and they all sort of had this multicolored, buggy-eyed little thing going on. <laughs> and we had hermit crabs, and we had a bird, and we had a toothless horse that the kid's daddy got for them. And... Uh, eventually we had a goat out in the yard because he promised my daughter, you know, he went and got this goat and eventually a pot belly pig. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the deal was that I was determined to find something that was going to love me unconditionally. No strings attached. Just love me. And I think that's all I ever really wanted was to love and be loved And I thought that's what I was hunting for. You know, I was hunting for the Prince Charming to love me like my mom and dad were enmeshed. You know, they were crazy about each other. And um, so I was looking for that. And instead of the wonderful prince on the white horse, I got the drunken frog. (laughs) And I kissed him and he did not turn into the prince. And I kept looking for Prince Charming. I kept looking for him. All those years I knew that he must be out there somewhere because all those fairy tales said so Cinderella you know Snow White all of the fairy tales had the white horse that comes and rescues you from the tower or pretty woman Richard Gere comes and sweeps you off the fire escape or off factory floor you know or whatever and off you go into the wild blue line and live happily ever after that's what's supposed to happen right the two uh, cats in the yard, the white picket fence, and all of that. And I was uh, profoundly disappointed in my life. It wasn't what it was supposed to be. 
the picture that I had. Expectations are premeditated resentments. And I had a resentment. But I didn't know that. Because when I first heard that in meetings, I'm like, well, I don't have any resentments. <laughs> you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with me even. I only came here because he is a drunk. And he needs to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, but this lady asked me if I wanted to feel better. That she had been in Al-Anon a long time. She asked me if I wanted to feel better. Well, yeah. Yeah, I want to feel better. So I went. And um, not until I hit my bottom, and I, you know, I used to joke about being a low-bottom Al-Anon. Uh, I didn't see how I could get any lower than what I was. Um, not feeling like there was a way out at all. Just trapped in a life. Because I'm, I... Uh, Married Johnny, and then about 10 years into that, we got a divorce. He wrecked the first new car I ever had. And I was mad. I was so mad. And uh, I said, that's it. I'm sick of you. I don't love you anymore. I hate your guts. We're getting a divorce. And so we did. That wasn't quite as easy as it sounds, but uh, we did. We got a divorce. And... Um, And I went out there and tried to start over a new life. I didn't know. I already had all that stuff with me when I went in that marriage anyway. You know, there was a reason I picked him. There was a reason I did the things I did, that fairy tale life I was seeking and so forth. And so anyway, um, we got a divorce, and he kept calling me and following me around and throwing rocks at my window and coming to my work and telling me, I love you, baby, I can't live without you, and I can't live without our children, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm out there looking for Prince Charming, but you know what? I couldn't find him. I couldn't find him. There was nobody else out there saying, hey, I love you, baby, come on. I want, I want you. You know, I need you. I needed to be needed. Later, by the time I finally, you know, figured out what was going on, I'd been darn near needed to death. Um... So, after about a, a little over a year or so, he went to jail on a DUI that he had had a long time ago. In the meantime, while we're divorced, a miracle happened. He quit drinking. And he looked better, and he acted better, and he was just all cleaned up, and he was, you know, doing right, acting right, wanting to get back home. And so uh, he went to jail on this DUI and did his... 45 days time and while he was doing that I took the kids back to church I had quit going to church when we got uh, divorced because all I heard there was you can't get a divorce it's wrong and merit you know all those kind of things and he crammed that down my throat all the time guilt oh my god um guilt and so while he was in there, I took the kids to church, and I hadn't been in a long time. And the very first Sunday that I sat back down in church began the series of sermons on the family and the evils of divorce. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay then. God's talking to me. 
he's telling me something. He's telling me I need to put my family back together. Nobody else is coming along to rescue me. Mr. What's your name? Uh, Johnny over here, he wants to take care of me and love me and all this, and my kids want to be with their father. And So when he got out of jail, I let him come home, and we got married again. Yeah. <laughs> Some are sicker than others. Actually, there's a whole club of us up in the Memphis area that have married our husband, our husbands more than once and divorced them more than once, too. Um, we got married, and in 30 days, he was completely wasted. Um, I didn't know he'd been on the cocaine maintenance program the whole time, but he wasn't drunk. <laughs> But he was drunk now, and I was, uh, I was embarrassed, and I was terrified, and I didn't know what I was going to do now because now I really had tried everything. What was I going to do? And it took seven more years after that before I made it to Al-Anon. That was a long time. Um, one night, he was threatening to kill himself. And so I went and got in bed and put on my headphones and listened to music so I wouldn't hear the gun when it went off. <laughs> you understand I'd been waiting for this to happen. <laughs> he kept promising and promising and promising. All those broken promises. <clears throat> so I'm waiting. So in a little while, I check. I don't hear anything. And uh, so I finally got up, went out to his little workshop where he, had, where he was usually out there, and the door was shut, which was unusual. So I got a little stick, and I popped up his lock, and I went in there. He wasn't there. But there was a note. I'm like, okay. So I thought, okay, well, so what do you do? Um... Do you call the police? Do you call the fire department? Do you call the morgue? What do you do when somebody's, you know? So I said, well, maybe I better go put on some clothes and go out and look for the dead body. So I'm, I go put on, uh, you know, some clothes so I can go outside, and I open the door, and way out in the dark under the tree, you know, I'm going to go look for a dead body, and that's all just like normal at our house. But... Um, <laughs> But there he is. I see him out in the dark under the tree. And he's, he actually had a gun. Um, and all of a sudden, this man came walking up out of the dark. We lived in this place where the driveway was real long down to the street. And this man always used to come roaring up the driveway in his big white plumbing truck. But this night, he just came walking up out of the dark. Really weird. And he walked over to Johnny, and he took the gun away from him. And um, and he brought it to me, and he said, you know, put this away, and I'll take care of him. Well, he went out there and gave him some joints and said, here, smoke this. This will take care of it. And uh, But I don't remember anything else after that, that night, because I had emotional blackouts. There are places in my life where I just don't know what happened after such and such a point in a given day, because I just went away. And I remember that, and I, I had, uh, that's 
part of how I tried to deal with, I guess, my situation is I lived in a fantasy world because my life sucked, you know, so I'd just go away and um, imagine what it would be like if it was all like I thought it should be, you know, the right man, the right job, the right children, the right whatever. And uh, so I came to Al-Anon. That's how I came here, you know. Uh, scared to death, hurt. I was mostly angry and hurt because I had begun to shut down. Um, like when you turn your computer off, you know. Click, there goes one program. Click, there's the other one. And they were all shutting down. And the only thing left was pissed. <laughs> <clears throat> so this lady asked me if I wanted to feel better, and I did. So I went. And in my very first Al-Anon meeting, I can't remember anything they said, but I remember that I knew I was in a room with people like me for the very first time. And whatever it was they had, I wanted it. And I kept coming back. Um, I was not a follow-through kind of person. I'd get into, oh, let's see, I like handwriting analysis. You know, or I like this or that or the other. I'd be interested in something, but I would never follow through. Um, and life was chaos. It was difficult to stay focused and follow through and do anything significant. But whatever they had there, I wanted it. And um, so I kept going back. And he came to meetings and he got drunk. And, uh, and he went to treatment and he got drunk. And he came to some more meetings. Phil even met him one time at a meet, at an AA meeting. Um, but he either could not or would not give his life over to God in the simple program. Now, he preached about God all the time. And I used to be so angry at that hypocritical, you know, how dare you tell me what I have to do. Um, those Alanons loved me. And they put up with me stomping my feet on the floor of the meetings when they would say, well, it takes time. <laughs> and I'd be stomping and gritting my teeth and telling them, I don't have time. Don't you understand? I have got to have it now. You know, I need relief now. That's why I'm here. But um, I kept coming back, and I have never, ever stopped going back since June 17th of 1992, for which I am so grateful. Um, there was a lady in the room when I went to those early meetings, and she glowed with a light. And I asked her to be my sponsor, and she said she would, and she told me some things to do, call her every day. Oh, my God. Um, do what? Um, stuff like that. Go to meetings, call me every day, this and that and the other. And so I, I started to do that, but you know what? I couldn't get her on the phone. And I tried another time, and I couldn't get her on the phone. So you know what I did. I just quit calling. And I got sicker and sicker. Because actually I got worse after I went to Al-Anon than I did before. Because I didn't know how screwed up I was before, and I was sitting in these meetings, and you people made me sick. 
you told me I was sick. You showed me how I was sick. You showed me that I had to look at me because I blamed him for everything. I blamed him for everything. Um, There's a reading in one of our books that says that God is a power greater even than alcoholism. That just blew me away because there was no power greater than alcoholism when I got here because it affected everything. Everything I did, everything I said, every choice I made, every focus I had was on what to do about it. Not what to do about me. So you guys helped me learn that there was a new way to look at it and a perspective. And that's how I came to understand that, you know, my sponsor said, I want you to go to open A meetings so you can learn about alcoholism. And learn to have compassion for the alcoholic. And I said, well, screw that. (laughs) Who wants compassion? Well, all I've ever been is hurt, you know. But I went anyway. Because somewhere along the line, after I quit calling her and got sicker and sicker and sicker, I went back to her and I said, you know, I really need a sponsor. And she said, yeah, you really do. (laughs) So... She explained to me what being willing to go to any links meant. And that if I had to push a pencil with my nose from East Memphis all the way downtown, that that's what I would do. And so despite the job, despite the children, despite the chaos, whatever duties, responsibilities, and whatever imagined things I had in my busy, important life to take care of, I had to go to meetings. And she had me going to three, four meetings a week at least. She had me going to AA meetings. My first one, I was terrified because I was going to walk into a room with a bunch of alcoholics. And, but I went, and you know what I found out? They were wonderful, exciting, interesting, terrific people in their sobriety. And what an awesome thing it was to be around people recovering, working on themselves, trying to do something better, change, you know, the spiritual life that was being lived. Um, And, of course, at first I thought all alcoholics and all Al-Anons were wonderful, perfect, working their programs, you know, people. And um, she told me to hang out with the winners. And I said, well, isn't that being judgmental? (laughs) I mean, how do I know? So we talked about that. And how do I know? What I look for is I look for happy people. Who is happy? Who is thriving? You know, because much as I like most people I know, most people I meet, I, don't, I can't hang out with everybody. I mean, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. So I was to choose, how do I choose, you know, who I spend my time with? And so I started hanging out with what, look like the winners and um, my god it's been an incredible adventure you know it's an adventure Um, it's been so hard sometimes I remember one night just throwing my Al-Anon books across the room into the floor I'm like this is too hard I can't do it 
But you know what? I got up the next day and I picked up my books and I went to another meeting and another one and another one and an AA one and a convention one and an eating meeting. And I started to do things. Well, there was a lot of recovery that took place at the Cracker Barrel <laughs> in the rocking chairs. And those were the meetings after the meetings where a lot of stuff got discussed that couldn't actually be talked about in the meeting. We would take blankets in the trunks of our cars and we'd go to the Cracker Barrel and we'd have dinner and then we would get our blanket. I mean, in the middle of the winter, we would sit in the rocking chairs, wrapped up in our blankets until uh, literally two, one night, I think five o'clock in the morning is about the latest we ever did. It was awesome. I learned so much. I mean, the Al-Anons in my first group would take salt shakers and pepper shakers and things on the table at the Shoney's and, and showed me what it meant to keep walking into the same wall over and over, butting my head. And, and they'd say, you know, all you have to do is like this or that. I'm like... Really, simple, everything's so simple. But I had it so complicated and so hard to figure out. You know, it wasn't that hard. Just do something different. So every little thing that I did different helped me learn how to choose differently. Um, when I finally decided to divorce him again, um, that was one of the hardest things I ever did. Because I had tried, you know, you just put everything you have into it. I had put everything into trying to make that work. And it wasn't going to work because I was dying. You know, he was drinking, but I was dying. You know, he drank, but the whiskey made me crazy. I hunted for it. I sniffed it. I, saw, I found it in coat pockets and feed sacks and everywhere you can hide something like that. The kids went out in the woods and brought back grocery sacks. But look what we found, Mama. Bunch of empty bottles <laughs> that he threw out. You know, I mean, just craziness. There was craziness of all kinds. I was crazy. One day, I drove home from work, and I could not turn into my own driveway. My children were there waiting for me to come home. I could not turn into my own driveway. I had to drive around the block two or three times before I could finally make myself go in. I never knew what it would be. One day, it might be okay. You know, that was one of the problems. He wasn't always mean. You know, one day he would be okay. One day he would be nice. You just never, it was the insanity of never knowing what to expect. Just not knowing would drive, it drove me crazy. So, um, anyway. It was the hardest thing because I was afraid he would kill himself. And y'all helped me to know that that wasn't so. You said it wouldn't be my fault. That people are responsible for themselves. I'm responsible for myself. You know, he's got his stuff and he's going to have to choose. I'm going to have to let God have him. And his recovery is his responsibility, just as if he had diabetes or cancer. He would either take insulin or go get some kind of treatment or he would die. And I couldn't make that happen or not happen. So I'm like, okay, and I'm responsible for mine. Um, so I kept doing what I was supposed to do, and you helped me understand that I mattered. I came to believe that I mattered, and it wasn't all about him. So I was able to make that choice, and uh, 
I mean, even in a little thing like that, I was terrified to tell him I was going to uh, file for divorce again. And they said, well, here, here's what you do. Do it in a public place. Take him, you know, at the restaurant. We'll be right over there at the next table if you want. All along the way, I had someone helping me, someone backing me up, someone encouraging me, someone, I mean, telling me what to say. My sponsor would tell, I needed that. Some people rebel against things like that. Do this, say this. I didn't. I needed that. Read this. Say this. Go here. Pray that. And it'll be okay. And it was. Uh, my sponsor took me through the steps in this very particular way that she had been taken through. Her husband had been uh, taken through the steps by this man named Cecil. And then her best friend, also who was an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic, took the steps from Cecil. And Sherry got mad because they were getting happy. They were improving. Their lives were changing. And here she was just watching this happen and she was like what about me she was going to Al-Anon but she was seeing all this you know happening with her husband so she asked Cecil if he would take her through and he did and he taught her how to take other Al-Anons through the steps so um, we still are continuing that on today once I did it she taught me how and now I've had the opportunity to take um, a couple you know a few people through and a couple of them it's not for everyone but a couple of them have asked, can I learn how to take somebody else through? And it's just such a wonderful experience to watch what happens in people's lives. You know, to me, the steps are like medicine. That's what I take for what is wrong with me. And um, I can have a bottle of medicine here. I can go get the prescription filled. I can have the bottle sitting right there. I can look at it all day long. I can look at those steps. I can read that 10,000 times. But if I don't take it, you know, just like the medicine, if I don't take it inside of me where it does the magic work that it does, then I'm not going to have the benefit of it. So um, taking the steps totally changed my life. I remember when um, steps one, two, and three came crashing into my life and threw me onto the bathroom floor, snot slinging, sobbing, you know, that deep sobbing that comes from way somewhere in there and you can't get your breath and it hurts, but you know it's doing something to you. And I remember, you know, just, you know, I had my fist in God's face before, you know, after he got drunk again. How dare you, God? do this to my life. Um, you know, poor, pitiful, victim, martyr, me. And, uh, but here I was, I was going to Al-Anon, everything was supposed to be getting better, and I was feeling horrible. I was realizing how much I had to do, you know. And so I was thrown onto the floor sobbing and uh, cried out to God, okay, all right. I see. I can't do it. I can't do it without you. Um, that surrender to win that my sponsor had been telling me about. I thought surrender was just giving up, and I'd been giving up. I thought I'd been giving up all along. I always gave up. I always lost. He always won. You know, the battles, whatever. It was always about somebody else. Whether it was the children, you know, I had my daughter 
started threatening to kill herself. My son was drawing pictures of people knifing each other and skeletons hanging. And he internalized all his rage. And she verbalized all of hers. Ran away from home. You know, the whole wild children thing. They went to live with their drunk father after I got divorced from him. But um, the... When I got up off that bathroom floor, I didn't feel so different right then. But the next morning when I woke up, I knew that I had been changed and I would never, ever be the same again. And so I went on and finished, you know, finished that step-taking process. And in the middle of that step-taking process is when I met Phil and I, I told my sponsor, I met this man at one of those AA meetings you made me go to. <laughs> and she goes, oh, oh no, 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 no. We can't go there. Not while you're taking your steps. Uh-uh. So I had to say, well, um, yeah, but, you know, the yeah, but. So she said, well, bring him to me. So um, I had to take Phil over there for the sponsor interview. <laughs> now, little did I know, he was uh, doing the sponsor interview thing, too. He wanted to see what my sponsor was all about, see if he wanted to keep hanging out with me. And um, the kids had already gone to live with their drunken father, which they stayed with me when we first got divorced. But you know what? They didn't like a program of recovery. (laughs) They didn't like mom changing and starting to have a little discipline, a little normalcy, a little something different. They were used to chaos. They were used to insanity. And they liked being able to manipulate their drunk daddy into doing whatever they wanted to do. So she went to live with her dad, and I couldn't control her, so I let her go. And... um, I had to talk to my group and talk to my sponsor and talk to a counselor and some other things in order to deal with, you know, letting her do that. Well, then my little son comes along a couple weeks later and he goes, well, I'm going to live with Dad too. Well, that really hurt because he was the little spiritual one. You know, he was the little one I took to Alatine. Well, she went to Alatine too, but she just wanted to go out and smoke with the other kids. And uh, Adam went and he memorized the 12 steps and he just loved to recite those. So, but now he's going to go live with Dad, too, and I think he was going to watch out for his big sister. Um, so they're gone. The kids are gone. And that was the hardest letting go I've ever done. Um, it got bad, and I had to go get them and um, take them from their dad's home. I mean, I literally had to physically force take them from him. Uh, from their, He was passed out, <laughs> of course. I took the police with me. We got them. Well, so I took them with, uh, over to our apartment. And the minute I got them in there and I had to go to the bathroom, so I left the room went, and they ran away. <laughs> they ran. I had to call the police. You know, all that whole chaos of stuff like that. And um, they ended up going back to their dad, the uh, Department of Children's Services people. You know, they come and check you out. And they look at your kitchen cabinets. And they look at the kids, and they don't have any bruises on them. And they uh, uh, 
tell you you have to go do all these things, get psychologically evaluated, and, you know, they'd already examined the children physically. So I went and I submitted myself to their psychological evaluation. And the result of that was that I should continue going to meetings. (laughs) I said, okay, I think I can do that. He never did a blankety-blank thing that they told him to do, except they looked at the kids. No bruises. So, okay. They can stay with him. I'm like, okay then. Talk to the sponsor, talk to my group, my lawyer, the counselor, and I let them go. And um, I'd run into somebody and they'd say, well, how are you doing? I'd say, you know what? I'm doing great. I'm happy. And one time this person said to me, what do you mean you're happy? How can you be happy? Your kids are blah, blah, blah. You know what? I can be happy because I choose to be. Because the God of my understanding wants me to be happy and joyous and free. And you guys gave me permission to. And you showed me how. You know, you showed me how. You told me I could learn to play again. I I got coloring books and crayons. I found swings. Because when I was a little girl, I used to swing and sing songs. And that was part of my little, you know, just little self. And I found some swings right outside an Alana. I'd been looking all over town for a, play, a safe place to go swing. Walked out of a meeting one night, and right there in the church yard was swings. I said, y'all, come on. We went and sw- put our feet up in the leaves of the trees. It was awesome. Learning how to play again. Learning how to love. I had love confused with pity you know I thought I loved him I was just a kid I didn't know what was what but I thought I loved him but I felt sorry for him I had pity for him he had tragedy he had heartache you know well so what everybody does you know Um, I had it confused with sex I mean I thought that would help you make you love me you know Um, I had it confused with enmeshment like my mom and dad, uh, rescuing. What I found out was those things are not love. You know, love, I found out, is a, it's a decision. You know, it's a, a willingness to extend oneself for the purpose of nurturing one's own or another's spiritual growth. Thank you, Scott Peck. <laughs> yeah. Um... I found out that God's will for me is something wonderful and exciting and vital and interesting and better than anything I would have ever dared to ask for for myself. Thank you, Emmett. Um, All this stuff I've been exposed to that opened up my heart and my mind. You know, every philosophy, I guess, you know, teaches about self-examination, looking at myself. I didn't know how to do that, but you guys showed me um, that that can change my life. So because you helped me understand that I matter and you helped me understand that it's okay to be happy, I was scared to death of being happy. 
I had been so disappointed so many times. How many times that I ever, you know, that wishing and hoping, that fantasy world, well, maybe today it'll be okay. Why? Nobody did anything different. Why would it be any different? Um, to find out that reality was better than denial. Because in denial, all I can do is react or hide. Lie. It's a lie. You know, to, to go around acting like everything is okay when it's not okay is a lie. And I, my whole life was a lie. And I didn't mean to be a liar. I, didn't, I thought I was pretty honest. But I was lying. I was lying to me that my life was okay and pretending and hoping it was going to be different. So I learned from you how to do something about it, you know, to take steps, uh, traditions that can be practiced in my private personal life that can help me have relationships with other people. Uh, children that today will call and say, Mom, what do you think about this? You know, the same girl that when she was 13 threatened to throw me out of the ninth floor window of our apartment and strangle the kitty cat. Can call me today and say, Mom, what do you think about this? I don't know what to do. You know? The son who was angry and raging inside today wants to know what I think about something. Today he'll tell me I'm the best mom. You know, today he loves me. Uh, and they were angry. Um, what a blessing that is. And you know why that is? Because I didn't have to cling them to death. I had a tendency, you know, I was looking for that Prince Charming, and so anytime I, I had this problem with, like, falling in love, because I, I would see that and go, I'll have to have that or I'll die. You know, I'll have to have him or I'll die. And um, I learned to let go of that, and I learned to let go of my children to the point that I don't interfere with their lives. They, ha they ask, if they ask, I will tell them what I think. And I always try to wait for that. Um, when I was about, I think it was about 15 years, my, my Al-Anon birthday, my daughter was in town, and she, my, both my kids came to the meeting, which was just very, extremely rare. I don't know if they'd ever both been to a meeting before with me. But anyway, they were there, and I asked my daughter if she would like to give me my medallion for my birthday meeting. And she said, I think I can do that. And that little girl got up, and made a speech that made grown men cry because she was able to say that she appreciated how I had been able to love her unconditionally, that I hadn't uh, tried to force her to be somebody that she wasn't, that I accepted her, her tattoos, her... My daughter came to me when she was 14 years old and told me she was pregnant living with her dad. I said to my sponsor, uh, my daughter wants to have a meeting with me. I think I know what she's going to say. I know that's projecting, but <laughs> I think that I know what she's going to tell me. What do I do? And my sponsor said, well, you don't have to do anything today except listen to her and love her. You don't have to make any decisions today. You don't have to set any boundaries today. Just listen to her and love her. And she came and she told me she's going to have a baby and she was all excited and she was, you know, that was going to be her little somebody to love unconditionally. So she was happy with it, you know. I didn't have to say, oh my God, 
you know, you'll never have a senior prom, you'll never have the first date, you'll never have all the things you could say your whole life is, you know, screwed because you're having a kid. Um, I didn't have to say any of that. I just listened to her and love her. And so she actually, several years, you know, beyond that, she was able to recognize what that is. And you gave me that, you know. Um, Adam, when he went to, uh, he got a couple DUIs. I don't know if he's an alcoholic. Might be. He's only 30 years old now. He's doing well now. But he'd been, uh, got a couple DUIs, and you know what? He didn't call me to get him out of jail. My mom's an Al-Anon. <laughs> he got himself out. The court kindly sent him to a treatment center for part of his time he had to do. Phil had given him a big book for Christmas that year before. And when he unwrapped it, he was like, oh, God. <laughs> Thanks a lot, yeah. So he calls up from the jail, Mom, they, or from the treatment center, and he says, uh, Mom, they said you could bring me some socks and underwear and stuff, and I guess y'all better throw that book in there. I'll probably need it. <laughs> the, day he, uh, <clears throat> the day he was let go from the treatment center, he called and he said, Hey, Mom, this is Adam. And I'm an alcoholic. And I just bawled. <laughs> but you know what? It was good. It was a good cry. I was happy because I know what that means. And that means hope. That means hope. Because as long as he knows where we are and that we're here for him, as long as my kids know that life has changed because I came here to you, they see their life can be different too. They may need us one day. Well, no. They need us. <laughs> <laughs> they may decide someday they want what we have. And when they're willing to go get it, it'll be here. And that's why I want Al-Anon to be what it is and Alcoholics Anonymous to be what it is. So it's always here for them. Uh, one quick story and I'll finish. After my sponsor interviewed Phil, <laughs> I mean, she took him in the other room. I didn't get to hear what they were talking about. She, um, they came back out and so I said, I look at him like, well, and she said, he's a keeper. <laughs> so I got to keep him. And uh, he asked me to marry him. He said I married him for the theme. Our name is Lamb. So um, I had started collecting these little lambs. And uh, he, when he asked me to marry him, he asked me if I wanted to become a little lamb. And I, <laughs> well, yeah. Um, so we picked a date, and we um, we got rings and we got our, our marriage license and we had picked a date and we were getting right up to that date and we hadn't gotten a, a place, a preacher, whatever, you know, you've got to have the stuff to make it a done deal. And um, so we were running up on that. Well, we decided we would call some friends of ours who had gotten married by a local AA judge. In fact, Phil used to get drunk with that judge back in the day. And um, so we... He said, well, I don't have his home phone number, but you can catch him at his meeting. 
Um, and don't worry, he's always late. He's always late to the meeting. So we went to this meeting that night. It was a Friday night, and it was an open AA meeting, and it was the first time we'd ever been to that particular meeting. Um, walk in the door, and there was a girl there I went to high school with. She's like, hey, how, you know, what are y'all doing here? So we, you know, the meeting was about to get underway, so we really didn't have time to chat before, and Bob wasn't there. Sure enough, about 15 minutes into the meeting, he came in like, so we, were, we had all of our stuff with us, you know. And uh, so at the end of the meeting, this girl was chairing the meeting, and she said, well, um, uh, somebody said, somebody said, does anybody have a burning desire? <laughs> and Katie said, well, I do. I want to know what they're doing. God is so good. He sets everything up just right, you know. It was just set up just right. What are y'all doing here? And Phil elbows me, and I said, well, we want to get married. And they were like, oh, that's so sweet. When are y'all, gonna, when are y'all planning to do that? And we said, how about right now? And Bob says, do you have a license? Well, yes, sir. And he said, do the chips. I'll be right back. (laughs) And he went out to his car and got his little book that he always kept in the car because, you know, you never know when a couple of nuts might want to get married in the AA meeting. (laughs) So we had done the chips. He came back in. We had the Lord's Prayer and a wedding. Yeah. And that's been um, 18 years ago. And Philip has been the love of my life. People thought I was insane to marry another alcoholic. They did not understand the significance of recovering in front of alcoholic. Um, although this little lady in our area does say it is alcoholism, not alcoholism. <laughs> so a continuing program is a must, and that was a rule in our home. If you live here, you got to have a program. And that was for any kids that kind of wanted to come back and forth through. Adam came for a while to stay with us, and he didn't like all that stuff. And I was telling him something one day, and he said, well, you should have taught me that a long time ago. And I said, you know what? You're right. I should have. But all we have is today, and we're going to do it right today. I thank you for giving me a program to live by that lets me know that all I have is today, and I'm going to try to do it right today, to be right here, right now, because that's where God is. I don't have to go run around hunting for what God's will is. If I do what I'm supposed to do, what you've taught me, and get up and walk out into my life every day, it's there. If I step out of it, I'll know because I feel crummy. 24-7 before I used to live in this awful anxiety, and now I don't. So if I go varying into that area, I feel it, and I know the red flags my sponsor told me about. If you're having a negative emotion, that's your red flag to know your self-will just came up. And I'm to go, oh dear, (laughs) surrender to win, remember? So I thank you. You have given me life uh, and life fully. Thanks.
Thank you. Thank you, Teresa. Okay. Uh, oh, this room's getting full. <laughs> I got a, I got a little note here telling me that uh, the silent auction. I said you had to be present to win, but that's not the case. You simply have to show up at five p.m. right back there and claim what it is you you bid on. Five p.m. and the banquet tickets are still out there the literature, everything, raffle tickets. Y'all want to close this up and come back at, let's see, at 12.30 p.m. There's an Al-Anon meeting. The balloons are giving up on us. <laughs> In the ballroom at 12.30, there's an Al-Anon meeting. And at 2 p.m. will be our next speaker hospitality area and coffee area is open for lunch and the menu's out there somewhere y'all want to close with prayer